Samuel and have been uh, for a while. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 10. If you have a Bible uh, or a Bible application, it's also printed in the, in the bulletin and on the screen behind me. Um, so why don't we, let's just jump into it. We'll do the intro after the scripture reading. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is 2 Samuel chapter 10. This is the word of God. It is faithful and it is true. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each of them and cut off their garments in the middle at the hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king David said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah. 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, Both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. And they came to Helam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hedadezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before David, before Israel. And David killed, all, killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots, and 40,000 horsemen. 
and wounded, wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. The grass withers and the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So uh, if you were here last Sunday, I have to tell you that uh, when I began reading this chapter, my first thought was to title this sermon, Hey, They Can't All Be 2 Samuel 9. Uh, because 2 Samuel 9, if you were here last week, is a, it's a pretty excitingly straightforward, uh, encouraging passage about God's unconditional love for us as we watch King David interact with Mephibosheth. But here we are in chapter 10. Uh, chapter 10 is sort of the intro to uh, the next three chapters, so 10, 11, and 12. Uh, 10, 11, and 12 cover what's called the Israel-Ammon War. Uh, it's the backdrop of David's great fall uh, in sin, in uh, adultery, and murder. It's, uh, it's recorded in a way that's a little more exciting than chapter 8, if you were here. Uh, chapter 8 just sort of uh, gives very broad brushstrokes of how God uh, delivered Israel from all of the surrounding nations and gave them peace. Uh, chapter 10 seems to return to some of that and show us specifically with uh, the Ammonites and the Syrians some of the ways that God uh, provided deliverance. We're going to just do a quick walkthrough uh, overview-wise, hopefully quick, and then, uh, and then just answer or raise some questions or some applications from the whole passage. So Nahash, king of Ammonites, has died. And apparently there was some sort of uh, treaty, uh, even covenant, you might say, between uh, Nahash, the people of Ammon, and David, the people of Israel. There wasn't such an agreement or treaty between the Ammonites and Saul uh, because uh, recorded for us in 1 Samuel is a pretty uh, significant battle between the Ammonites and the Israelites in which God granted Saul victory at that point. But here uh, David uh, recognizes that Nahash has been loyal to him and he wants to be loyal uh, to Nahash and to Nahash's son. I don't know why our... Uh, English Bibles disguise this, but that word loyal is the same word as kindness that kicks off Second uh, Samuel 9. It's the word chesed, or covenantal faithfulness, or steadfast love. We unpacked that a lot last week. So interestingly, David opens this chapter the same way he opens uh, the last chapter. He wants to show kindness to the offspring of a loyal father. As he said, I wanted to, he wanted to show kindness to an offspring of Jonathan or even to an offspring of Saul. Here he wants to show kindness to the offspring of the king of the Ammonites, the new king of the Ammonites, Hanun. So last week we're watching David show this kindness inside the house of Israel to the people of God. Here we see David extending that kindness outside the borders of Israel, extending, offering at least, this kindness beyond just uh, the expected 
perimeter of Israel. In one sense, this is, you even see almost a, a picture of what God had promised to Abraham happening in Genesis 12 when God said, uh, through your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And here is David seeking to be that blessing. Uh, unfortunately, Hunan didn't read Genesis 12 and was not aware uh, of the kindness of uh, David's heart. Apparently, he hadn't read 2 Samuel 9 either. When David decides to show kindness to someone, uh, he means it. Hanun receives some pretty bad counsel. His actions are even worse. His actions are intentionally over-the-top, insulting, degrading, uh, demoralizing. Uh, if you read this and you think, what, what nation would actually act this way? You have to remember that in 1 Samuel, this same nation, the Ammonites, offered peace with Israel as long as Israel let them carve out the right eye of every soldier before they sued for peace. So uh, Ammonites not known for their kindness, And so they shave half the beard uh, in a society, in an age where uh, your beard and the size of your beard was an image of your masculinity. They shave half their face and then cut their robes off at the hip. And so uh, you can see how this would be a humiliating thing, how they are then forced to walk even just out of the region of the Ammonites, you know, David hears about it, tells them to just wait in Jericho, at least till their beards have grown back. Obviously, they'll get a change of clothes when they get there as well, not to worry. Verse 6 is weird, I think. Weird because it's a little humorous. It just seems strange. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to Saul, did you not think that's what's going to be the reaction? Did you think David would be like, Oh, you guys, you're so, whatever. No, it was a ridiculous act. And then they realize it's sort of they, they've insulted their neighbor and only after insulting their neighbor do they realize, oh, my neighbor will be insulted by my insulting him. So when the Ammonites saw this, in fact, that phrase, when the Ammonites saw, when uh, the Syrians saw, this phrase, when they saw, repeat, is repeated like five times to kind of keep the action moving forward in nine, 6, 9, 14, 15, and 19. So the Ammonites saw that they were a stench, so they go and hire the Syrians to assist them in their battle. David sends Joab and uh, the elite of his army. And so he sends Joab and the the elite of his army to meet this uh, problem. Now this actually, one thing that this does is establish for us that it's not abnormal for the king not to take up every battle. I know it's easier and it almost preaches better when we get to first to second Samuel 11 it says when the kings go out would go out in battle in the spring David sent Joab and we're like uh-oh but here one chapter before there's no uh-oh about it David knows that the king does not have to fight every battle in fact it's wisdom in all leadership to know that you don't have to do everything Jethro pointed that out to David in Exodus Jethro, David's father-in-law. And so David 
sends Joab, the army, and the army out. They go to Rabbah, which is the, the capital city of the Ammonites. When they get there, they find that they are basically between a rock and a hard place. The Ammonite army is outside of the city walls, ready to fight. The Syrians have come up through open land, and they're behind them. Joab's a wise military leader. He divides his forces. He says, you know, we will fight. He takes the stronger, and he says, well, the Syrians are a bigger threat. We'll go there. Puts his brother in charge of the half of the army that's over fighting with the Ammonites. And then in verse 12, verse 12 is really the only place that the Lord is mentioned. It's the only place that you get any kind of theological, I guess we could preach on this part, if nothing else. And here's Joab encouraging his brother and his army, saying to them, Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. And really, is there any better advice for every believer of all times, no matter what your circumstances, no matter what you're facing, be of good courage, do what you're called to do, and may God do what seems good to him. This is the call for every Christian. Do what you've been called to do. Trust God to do what he does. It's that whole faith and faithfulness walk. The Bible never holds these as intention. The Bible never claims that trusting God and acting faithfully are contradictions. Always we're called on to be courageous, do what we've been called to do, and trust God. Trust God with whatever results God sees fit to bring about. So we come back to the story. Joab and the people with him drew near to the battle. And it's funny, it just says, so they drew near to the battle with the Syrians and the Syrians fled. So it's very, it's very Monty Python-ish. It's like they're, they're ready to fight and it's like, run away, run away. But, uh, and then the Ammonites see that the Syrians, they're hired thugs have fled and so the Ammonites go back inside the city and they hide and so Joab returns to Jerusalem now the king of Syria at the time Hadadezer and we read about him in chapter 8 now we see how this battle had some of how the battle plays out Hadadezer is a little embarrassed that his army fled And so he summons his entire Syrian army, even from north of the Euphrates. The whole Syrian army comes to save face. He even brings his champion general to lead the whole campaign. And here is where David does recognize, okay, this is a greater threat. I will go. David summons all of Israel. So the entire, not just the elite of the army, the entire army comes out to go against the entire Syrian army. And we're told that the Lord gave victory to Israel. Syria flees again. The victory is described in just extreme language. 700 chariot drivers were killed. 40,000 of their cavalry were killed. The general, Shobak, is killed. 
Hadadezer's, we're told at the end that Hadadezer's uh, little lackey kings. It turns out that they, uh, they realized that they had fallen victim to one of the most famous classic blunders. Never get involved in a land war in Asia. And so they flee. They decide that's, listen, that's incredibly clever. So if you haven't watched The Princess Bride, we may have to bring you up on discipline. But <laughs> so they sue for peace. And, and this is how chapter 10 ends. And so the Syrians, were told, were afraid then to ever help the Ammonites. So it's not, that's why it's not called the Ammonite-Syrian-Israelite War. It is just the Ammonite-Israelite War. And so the next two chapters will lay out for us sort of what happened. How did Israel subdue Ammon? But we look at this chapter, and we can't just skip over and say, well, it's just introductory to get us to the juicy stuff in chapter 11. There have to be things in this chapter that are useful for us. Now, obviously, uh, not every chapter is going to be so rich and full, partly because the chapter numbers weren't even a part of Scripture until very, very late. And so it's okay to look at some passages and say, well, it really does seem very introductory because uh, there wasn't I mean, whoever wrote Samuel wasn't sitting there looking at the scroll and saying, now I think I'll write chapter 10, verse 1. No, he was writing a whole account historically. But we can, I think, draw at least four lessons out of this passage. Some of them are more obvious than others. Some of them, I admit ahead of time, are forced onto the passage. But I think we can at least learn from them. The first one is the most forced but I think it's a lesson that all of Scripture teaches us. The Ammonites were wrong about David's motives, and that misinterpretation turned out to be deadly. So the Ammonites were wrong about David's motives, and the misinterpretation turned out to be deadly. As human beings, you and I are created in God's image with knowledge and understanding. We are interpreters of everything that goes on in our life around us. That's part of what makes us image bearers. You know, we, we see things, we observe, we draw conclusions. You, know, you see it all the way back in Genesis when God tells Adam, call the name, he brings the animals before him to see what he would name them because he's got to interpret his surroundings. We are created interpreters. The problem is that sin, I mean, if your interpreter has antennae, sin has like busted those antennae. Like your interpreter is broken. You misinterpret a lot. We misread, we misapply, we assign motives where no motive exists. How many of you ever have ever sent an email or received an email in response to an email that said, I can tell from your tone you're upset? It's an email. Unless they like recorded a, less, a message to you, there was no tone. Now maybe you're correct but you're interpreting words on a page and adding tone. 
I mean, tone is, is critical in communication. Body language is critical in communication, but we misinterpret all the time. Jane Austen made a delightful career out of dragging us along through misinterpretation after misinterpretation, and you're sucked in, and you want to throw the book across the room, but you won't throw the book across the room because will Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy ever be on the same page at the same time? And it's excruciating. That's, I know. Guys, pick up a Jane Austen book. They're very good. (laughs) I like them. Very humorous writing. But what is humorous in writing and in the movies, it's not so much in real life, is it? Misinterpreting each other, having false motives assigned. I have to tell you some of the most memorable fights that my wife and I have had have been because one of us misinterpreted the motive or the emotion or the action of the other. And I won't say which of us is usually the culprit in that. I have a vague feeling that you have a vague feeling of who that is. But again, I I recognize it's not the point of the passage, but it is the point of Scripture that we ought to be seeking to understand each other more than we do. We too often, our fights come from, I know exactly what you meant when you said that, or I know exactly why you did that, or I know exactly, I just know, I just know. And those are just dangerous places. The Ammonites just knew that David had ulterior motives. And they were completely wrong. And it cost many of them their lives. Second, doing the right thing does not guarantee Rainbows and unicorns. So in chapter 7, the Lord speaks of blessing David and his offspring, and David is amazed and he's overwhelmed by God's kindness, so much so that in chapter 9, he wants to show that kindness to others. He's experienced the loving kindness of God, and so he goes and he expresses that same loving kindness to Mephibosheth, and everything is wonderful, and Mephibosheth responds exactly the way you would hope anyone would respond to that. And so here he is in chapter 10, and he goes and he's like, I'm going to continue to spread this love. I'm going to show loving kindness to the Ammonites. And it results in a war, a long war, a disastrous war. It's not recorded for us, but we can assume some, if not many, Israelites lost their lives. We will learn about them losing their lives In chapter 11, David is trying to show kindness, and it does not result in any sense in a happily ever after. David's kindness is despised, it's mocked, it's thrown back in his face. So has that ever happened to you? You do what you are certain God is calling you to do. Because it's right, and it's kind, and it is abused and despised. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 tells us, see that, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Romans 2 reminds us the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Galatians 5 reminds us that A mark of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is kindness. 
We're not called on to be kind just to people who deserve kindness or to people who are going to react well to kindness. We're called to be kind. If we only had to be faithful or kind when the results were what we wanted, Jesus would not have gone to the cross. Jesus was kind, and his kindness led to his death. His kindness was misinterpreted. The result of David's kindness was a war with the Ammonites and the Syrians. The result of Christ's kindness was his own crucifixion. We do not get to choose the results of acting faithfully. Sometimes it will open up very difficult times. Which brings us to the third point. Really the main point, probably of the passage, as I said when we reached verse 12, it's the only theological, it seemingly, act courageously and trust God. Do what God is calling you to do and trust God to do what seems good to him. I love that prayer of the church in Acts. In Acts chapter 4, uh, Peter and John have been arrested for that horribly uh, uh, destructive act of healing a man. I know, they should have been arrested. Who does that? So they heal a man, and they're brought in for questioning, and they're told, stop preaching in Jesus' name, or worse things will happen to you. And first of all, Peter and John say, well, well, you tell us, should we obey you or should we obey God? But the beauty is after they're released, the church has this great prayer because they recognize persecution is coming. They're doing what God is calling them to do, and yet thing, hard things are on the way. And they don't pray, God, don't let anything hard happen. They don't pray imprecatory psalms against the Romans or against the Jewish uh, leaders. They pray, Grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Grant us boldness no matter what comes. Be courageous. Trust God with the result. And the weird thing about this brings up the fourth point. The weird thing about all of this is that that comes out of Joab's mouth. Now, if you've been here or following along with 2 Samuel, you know that like, Joab's not a great guy. Joab is often uh, impulsive, vindictive, murderous. Joab sometimes is... It's good when he calls to question the king's orders or desires. Other times, it results in the death of the king's son. And here is Joab giving us this very godly advice. Be courageous and may God do what seems good to him. We have a, we have a very real problem today with this new phenomenon called the cancel culture. Like we are totally willing to quit listening 
to each other. If we can find one even unrelated reason to stop listening to each other. We're full of enmity and divisions. We're full of dissensions and quarreling and slander and partiality. We have unhealthy cravings for controversy. We like to quarrel about words. We have party spirits. We have evil suspicion. Each of those phrases, by the way, I chose intentionally because they are called out in the New Testament, most of them as disqualifiers for leaders in God's church. That that kind of attitude has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Paul calls these wicked, sinful disqualifiers. I wish it only existed outside of the church, but the church too often is just as ugly in how we treat each other. Do you write off a word spoken because of the source? If we are unprepared to receive real truth from those we deem unworthy of granting them a hearing, we'll also be unprepared when our heroes and idols fall into sin. If I am not ready to recognize that sinners can actually offer me great counsel and advice, I'll also be unprepared when my heroes in the faith falter and sin. In one sense, this passage sets up then perfectly, chapter 11. It's no accident that the author records very two, two very exemplary moments in the life of David. In chapters 9 and 10. In chapter 9, he's very kind to Mephibosheth. He's over the top. He's sacrificial in his dealings with him. In chapter 10, he's kind to the Ammonites, even though it backfires. But he's still kind and he's still faithful. There's nothing in these chapters that indicates that David is doing anything untoward or sinful. And all of this before quite possibly the worst episode of sin in his life. See, it's, it, it's in all of us. It's in all of us. We are sinners saved by grace alone. And we will continue to be sinners saved by grace alone until Christ returns or he calls us home. In fact, the table is a reminder and celebration of that. As Paul says, every time you eat of this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every time we come to the table, we are declaring once again, I am a sinner for whom Christ died. I don't belong here other than in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's a great celebration, and we receive that celebration. We receive it from the hands of sinners. And we're encouraged and lifted up and given strength to be bold again, to do what God has called us to do and trust Him with whatever results come. Let's pray. God, would you make us faithful and bold Give us trust, give us faith 
to trust you. Forgive us for the many ways that we uh, discount one another or idolize one another. God, help us to give us the Give us the faith to trust you and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.